Okay. So, today we are going to be discussing two ideas. Um, and the goal of the class is to differentiate between the two of them. Right? Um, before I get to the ideas themselves, I want to give a brief introduction. I have a classification in my mind um, between two different kinds of ideas. Um, one kind of ideas, um, I will call them rational ideas. I mean, it's just a way of labeling. It doesn't really matter the terminology. And the other idea I'll call mystical ideas. And I mean something very precise when I'm referring to this. Um, the way I think of rational ideas are ideas that if a person is left to their own devices and experiences the world normally and reflects and introspects, there are certain ideas, there are certain ways of thinking um, that make an, um, an intuitive kind of sense. Okay. Um, that doesn't always mean that everybody figures them out right away. Obviously, an idea can be deeper or shallower. Um, so a- an example of rational thought, well, not the only examples, would be mathematics. Okay. Um, counterintuitive ideas, or what I would call mystical ideas, which don't have to be religious in nature, are things that actually violate the intuitive ideas that one is kind of compelled to accept first because of some kind of authority. I'll get to that what I mean by that in a second. But that doesn't mean that you can't eventually understand them and make sense of them. And, and upon making sense of them in reflection, one can actually can become quite intuitive to the point that um, you can get to a place that it seems like they should be intuitive to you, but to other people they're not. Um, so I'm going to just give an example. I said mathematics would be an example of, of something which I would put in that first category. Um, Without going into the specifics, um, there are certain phenomena in physics that when the experimental data first showed up as quantum mechanics, it, people did not, it didn't make sense. Um, and it really forced people to not just change like a specific detail or specific thing, but fundamentally what they even think that they're doing when they're doing science. Um, and if it had not been for the force of that experimental data, the fact that reality actually is this way, despite the fact that it does not fit with our intuitive notions of how reality should be, no human being would think of things being this way. Okay? That, that happened in, in, in the early part of the 20th century in physics. Um, and there are other things like that in every other field. So it's not, when I'm breaking this apart, I don't necessarily mean that one of these ideas is religious, one of these ideas is not religious. You can have religious ideas that fit in the first category, religious ideas that fit in the second category. So before we get to the two ideas in that we're going to differentiate, I want to start off with an, an idea in, in, in religion that is in what I would consider to be a rational idea or intuitive idea. If we were to think of God in some sense as the basis of all reality, the creator of reality, the ground upon which reality um, depends, however you want to think of it. Um, and we were to think of things being, so to speak, closer or further from God. The, the, the famous analogy for this is like a river. The river flows from a spring. Um, so the water, as it comes out of the spring, which is the source, is very pure, clear water. And as it goes down the river, right, it gets, becomes polluted with all sorts of different things. So to the reality, as it ascends closer to God is purer and on a loftier level and more 
you know, whether we want to say more godlike or closer to God, but some kind of a higher order being. And God would be, of course, the ultimate being. And as you move further away from God, um, things get worse and worse. So we would kind of think of it, you know, God is on one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum, um, we would say is the physical world or, you know, depending on the exact way you conceive of these things, maybe the idea of Gehenna or hell or something is even lower than that. Does that make sense? That's an kind of intuitive thing. Um, you know, the closer you are to the sun, the brighter it is, the further you are from the sun, the dimmer it is, right? The closer you are to the fire, the hotter it is, the further away from the fire, the colder it is. Okay, that's intuitive? Okay. So there is an idea um, which is found in Kabbalah and in Hasidus. Um, and sometimes this idea is really just treated as one idea, but the point of today's class is to differentiate into two ideas. Um, and I'm going to give you the... Um, the, the Hebrew phrases for the idea after I give you a very superficial understand, explanation of the idea, okay? So going back to those analogies, if you're going down the river and you're moving further away from the wellspring, right, where would you expect the water to be most polluted? All the way at the end. All the way at the end, right, by the mouth of the river as it pours into the ocean, which usually is actually the case. Right, in the real world. Um, and if it's not the case, that's because something else has happened to change that fact, right? The coldest place would be the place that's furthest from. Right, it makes sense. What if I were to say that actually the way reality works is that when you get to the farthest point away from the source of the river, the water becomes clear again. Because it's the furthest point from the, from the spring. That the hottest place is the place furthest from the fire because it's the furthest place from the fire. The brightest place is the place that is furthest from the, from the sun because it's the furthest from the sun. Does that make any intuitive sense? No. Okay, so you see what I mean? Like that, like we would need some, something very powerful to compel us to even really consider that idea. For right now, I'm hoping the fact that I'm speaking to you as a rabbi and that I have to use the, the power of my rabbinic authority to persuade you to continue listening. Okay. But, okay. So this is found um, in, in two Hebrew phrases. The first phrase is, Niyutz t'chilasen b'saifan, v'saifan b'tchilasen, which means um, the beginning is wedged in the end and the end is wedged in the beginning. What does that mean? That means that the thing that you start out with, even though you lose it as you move away from the beginning, you end up reclaiming it in the end. And the thing that you discover in the end is the thing that you moved away from because it was there in the beginning. Yes. So if I go back to those analogies, that, if you'd apply that, that would mean that the purity of the water is reclaimed at the mouth of the river or you know, the brightest place is the place furthest from, from the sun or the warmest place is the place furthest from the fire. And obviously those things don't seem to follow that rule, right? Okay. The other phrase that is sometimes used broadly for the same idea, but for our purposes, the today's class, I want to actually differentiate the two ideas, is, the, is what is called in Hebrew, saif maisa, the last indeed, arose first in thought. Which seemingly is the same idea, right? Like the last thing ends up reflecting back on the first thing. Okay. It depends what you mean by a circle. 
it, there is a some kind of a circularity there in the fact you end up back where you started, right? In some kind of sense. But if it's truly the idea of a circle, a circle is not differentiated. There really is no beginning and end in a circle, is there? It's arbitrary. Okay. So there are some times where the, that idea of, of circularity, of ending back up where you started, is, 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 is an appropriate kind of image or metaphor, but, but it can only be taken so far because we don't want to think of, of like an actual circle as the type of thing we're talking about because then you've removed the ideas of beginnings and ends. Okay. Um, so now, before we go forward, let's put this back in a theological context. That means that where is there more God in as much as we can speak about there being more or less God. For the beginning and the end. The beginning, right? And the end. the end. So the place that is close. So God, there's the most God when you have God. And then as you move away from God, you have less and less God. But you get as far away as you can from God. Turns out there, there's more God there. There's just as much God. Right? Okay, now that you can understand is like, it, it, it's, it's a very counterintuitive idea. Okay. Let me apply this in a very, very simple level to Judaism. One of the, there are, there's a field called Jewish philosophy. I'm sure people have heard of it. Okay. Um, Jewish philosophy does not mean that it's philosophy done by Jews. Um, There are philosophers and some of them happen to be Jewish. What would make philosophy, Jewish philosophy, is that it's something related to Jewishness or Judaism, right? Right. In other words, um, and by the way, I would even go so far to say that doesn't necessarily mean it is necessarily kosher. It might even be heretical, right? For instance, a, 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 someone coming with an argument as to why nowadays there is no imperative to observe the halacha, right? You know, and making some kind of philosophical, moral, ethical, spiritual argument to that effect is engaged in Jewish philosophy. I would just say it's like heretical philosophy, okay? But Jewish philosophy pertains to things that have something to do with, with being a Jew in Judaism. That makes sense? Okay. Most questions in Jewish philosophy are not the uniquely Jewish. No, for instance, if we were to address the question of like, um, if God is good, why does evil exist? Right? Is that uniquely a Jewish problem? No. no right? I mean, any anybody that has a belief system of a all powerful good God who creates and runs the world is going to have the problem of how do they deal with evil? Right. Um, how does prophecy exist and why is it not prevalent? Right? Those, are, those are reasonable questions. And again, they're not uniquely Jewish. If, if anybody believes in religious divine revelation, whether they're Jewish or not, you know, have the other religions would have similar types of questions, right? And it may be that Judaism, Jewish philosophy offers unique answers. Maybe it even doesn't offer unique answers. There are two questions to my mind which are uniquely Jewish in nature. They're philosophical questions and they only really apply to Jews. They only apply to Jewish philosophy. If you weren't studying Jewish philosophy, you wouldn't have this question. I'll mention both, but I'm only going to talk about one because one relates to the topic of our class. One is, um, what's, what's this whole thing of God having a special covenantal relationship with the Jewish people? If God is the God of all of reality, why is he picking favorites? Right? Now, if you believe in a kind of universal religion, you don't have that question. Right? Um, and that's one we're going to The other thing is, what's this whole obsession with doing mitzvahs? Right. There, there seems to be this weird obsession in Judaism that you do things in a particular way. Why? Like, why does it matter that I take the right type of palm branch on the right day and wave it in the right directions? Right. Now, Lahavdil, other 
religions and even other monotheisms, they don't have that question because they don't have this notion that you have to do specific mitzvahs, right? I mean, so that's a, that's a serious question. And, and there's a whole genre of Jewish philosophy that deals with the question of what's called taimei mitzvahs, the reason for the commandments. Okay? And often the approach is taken is that the commandment, the physical action that we're doing, has to be justified um, because it leads to something which we can more easily associate with God. So the observing of the commandments leads to greater morality, greater spiritual awareness, affects the spiritual realms in heaven, whatever it is, right? But another thing we're saying is that my wrapping lather straps on my arm or, or lighting candles at a particular time is commanded by God because it leads to this other thing which we can more readily accept as godly whether it's spirituality, ethics, morality, you know, civil cohesion, you know, mystical realms, whatever the case might be, right? And all of that kind of buys into a premise that well, the, the physical act itself can't have any divine worth in and of itself because it's just a mere physical act. I mean, waving palm branches around and making noises with ram's horns and eating crackers on particular days. You, you see my point? It, it just doesn't seem like there's anything godly about that. But now if we were to apply the principle that we've just mentioned, what would that mean? Where is the most divinity, the most godliness to be found? In eating those crackers. That's right. Assuming you're doing it on the right day. Right. <laughs> those by the way would be the matz on Pesach, in case I'm going to get the reference, right? And what that does is it flips the entire question of time and mitzvah's reason for the mitzvah's on its head. It turns out now that the mitzvah doesn't need to be justified by something external to itself. That the act of, the, of fulfilling the commandment is the most divine thing other than God himself. So if I would like to get closer to God, I don't go aspiring for spirituality or ethics or mysticism or whatever, whatever, whatever. I just should embrace the, the most seemingly ungodly thing on the menu of Judaism, which would be ritual observance, commandments, doing the mitzvahs. Okay, so you see how like this idea, which is seemingly very abstract, actually ends up in as much as we can accept that idea, make, make how Judaism actually lived in practice for thousands of years make a lot of sense because it seems to be that um, we're, we'd have a lot of toleration in Judaism as long as people are keeping the commandments, right? Mm-hmm. And, by, and that means both they're doing the rituals and they, they know that they have to do the rituals. Mm-hmm. And just one second, let me ask the question. As opposed to, right, if there's a lot of different philosophies and approaches, it seems there's a lot of tolerance in Judaism. I don't know people aware of this, but there's a lot of different opinions about all sorts of things in Judaism, um, from how does reward and punishment work to um, how significant um, every individual is to the nature of the soul. There's a lot of differing views, okay? Um, even how literal to take some of the prophecies that we find in the prophets. But what we find no disagreement on is that you really, really do have to keep the commandments, like physically. And this mystical idea actually makes that make sense in as much as we can appreciate this mystical idea that somehow if Judaism is about God, there is more, the truth of God is more found in some sense in this most seemingly ungodly thing, the mere physical observance than in anything that we more associate with God, spirituality, ethics, etc. Yes, thank you for waiting patiently. Um, just following this line of logic, then it kind of seems like almost that it wouldn't 
and I know we're gonna like build on this foundation, but it kind of seems like it almost like wouldn't really matter what the connection of doing the action is to a belief system. Then it's more about the idea of like having a belief system and then doing the acts in furtherance of whatever the belief system is. Like if the if what is like bringing you closer to God is just doing the act, then it should be like not should be, but it seems to me like doing any act that you believe would bring you closer would then be fulfillment or furtherance of that mission. Well, okay, so we have to differentiate two things. One is that 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 we're not saying that all actions are this way, just that the realm, I mean, human beings exist on many different planes. We, we exist as intellectual beings, we exist as emotional beings, we exist as, as spiritual seekers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We also exist as like actual like physical beings that like control our physical behavior in the world. Which plane of our existence is God most present for lack of words and based on this idea is present on the act on the level the kind of the most ungodly thing which is our basic raw behavior now within that we would still differentiate between you can live that way in a way that is godly or not godly so you you know blowing the ram's horn on on Rosh Hashanah godly blowing the ram's horn um, on Shabbos not godly Right, but the point is that it's the blowing of the horn rather than the feelings of tshuva, the feelings of repentance, the meaning that we associate. That's not the real godly part of it, or not the, the ultimate godly part. Uh, the other thing is, and, and, and I, I briefly brushed over this, but there is an important principle that we cannot take away the notion of obligation from this um, for two reasons. One, according to Jewish law, um, as, as a basic rule, we, we, we adopt the position that on a practical level, one does not actually fulfill the commandment if one does not know they are obligated to the commandment. That's a more complicated thing, but that's the, the, on a basic level the practicality of it. Um, and the other thing is there, there's a separate question of um, that it, it, it's, it's incoherent on a human level to say I am pursuing something that I deny the importance or reality of. Mm-hmm. So you can't say I deny the obligation to keep God's commandments and I'm trying to connect to God through his commandments. Like that, that, that's psychologically incoherent. So you would have to have a certain basic belief that God did command these commandments and we're obligated to keep them. But the real connection is found in the doing of them if you applied this view. And then you would need to say, well, what does tefillin or Shabbos or mikvah get me? Well, no, those th- when I do those things, I'm somehow getting in touch with God in this very counterintuitive way. So that's how you would take this, this what I would, like I say, mystical idea, because it's really not intuitive. You have to have something that compels you to come to terms with it. But if, in as much as we can accept it, that does solve a major problem in Jewish philosophy, that otherwise you really kind of have to come up with these solutions, which are not necessarily false, but they often leave something to be desired. I mean, it is kind of hard to ground why we should be so caught up on the nuances of, of, of doing mitzvahs if the whole thing is to make us more spiritual or more ethical or whatever. It seems a little bit stretched. And, and there are ways of dealing with it. I'm not saying those are false, but this kind of addresses it much more directly. Yes? Um, with this logic, can someone go and apply it to regular mundane things that are not mitzvahs? Yes, so Hasidus does extend this further. And I'm not going to, that if you extend this logic further, the idea of, in involving the mundane in our service of God would actually extend this even further. And ultimately, you could extend this so far as to sin. 
that's right. And, 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 and the way to understand this is the, is the idea is that sin carries with it the seeds of tshuva. Um, I'm not going to go into that. Those, those, those are taking this idea and applying them to other... It is taking this idea and applying it to other things. Um, both of those are discussed in Hasidus. Um, what I will say, just for the purposes of this class, is that both of those discussions do end up grounding things back with the mitzvahs. In other words, the way we involve the mundane in our service of God is when the mundane is focused on the, how it brings to the mitzvah. So in, in this way of thinking, what we'd say is like this. It's not simply that, unfortunately, we need to eat and go to work in order to do mitzvahs, but actually it's in a certain sense better that we need to eat and go to work in order to do mitzvahs because if we're eating, going to work to do mitzvahs, there's a way that there's something more godly about the eating and working than the mitzvahs themselves. But only when they're linked back up to the mitzvahs. Then with sin, again, it's the sin as the context of which tshuva occurs, which again leads you back to the mitzvahs. There's, no, there's nothing in that which allows you to escape or bypass or circumvent the mitzvahs, which is an important thing because that's like fundamental Judaism. Um, if you were to take this and apply it in that direction, it would be like a real heresy. And, and there have been Jewish mystical movements that have gone off and done stuff like that and don't right. do that. Right, yeah, that's what he's doing. Yeah. Okay, good? Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to take this kind of general idea, which we have two kind of Hebrew phrases for, and we're going to actually speak about how these are actually two different ideas. They're not the same idea. Okay? So what I've done up until now is just describe the idea that there's some ideas which are more rational, some ideas which are really not. That doesn't mean we can't understand them. Um, and that this idea really does change how you think of things religiously, but it actually explains something that we find has been true about Judaism since Sinai. Okay. If we look at these phrases, one thing we will notice is that they are not actually saying the same thing. So the first phrase, um, the, beginning is, uh, 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 the beginning is wedged in the end, and the end is wedged in the beginning. There are only two things there, which is the beginning and the end, right? There's an implied middle, right? Okay. And in fact, sometimes that phrase is actually given, given that idea that the end, beginning is wedged in the end, the end is in the beginning is wedged in the end more than it is found in the middle. Actually, we'll sometimes actually go out and say that. But, but there's a beginning and there's an end. But if we look at the other phrase, it actually speaks about two different things. It speaks about thought and it speaks about action. So those are two things, right? But then what does it do with thought? It speaks about, it differentiates within thought and differentiates with inaction. It says, right, the last thing of action, the sophomites, the last thing of deed arose first in thought, meaning that there's things that are first in deed and things that are last in thought, right? So you see there's more complexity in that second phrase than there is in the first phrase. The first phrase is very simple. You have a beginning, you have an end, okay? What? And they're connected. Whereas here we have thought versus deed. That's one distinction. Then within thought and deed, we have first in thought as opposed to an implied last in thought. First in deed as opposed to an implied... Last indeed. And we're saying it's the first in thought has a specific relationship with the last indeed. That make sense? Okay. The other thing is that the, the first phrase actually um, speaks in a reciprocal manner. It says the beginning is wedged in the end and the end is wedged in the beginning, beginning right? It, it speaks out in both directions. Whereas the second one doesn't, it says that the 
the, the last, the last in, indeed arose first in thought. It doesn't say what arose first in thought is the last indeed, right? It, it, doesn't, go by, it doesn't go back and say it both ways. Okay? And observations like this um, indicate that these are actually not referring to the same idea. Now, I want to be honest. Many times in Hasidic texts and also non-Hasidic texts, these phrases are used interchangeably, which is true about many things in language. That sometimes we are using our language more precisely and in general things are more or less the same. And sometimes we're using them more, um, sorry, less precisely things are more or less the same. And sometimes we're using them much more precisely and trying to draw a distinction. So today's class is about how many times in Hasidic these ideas are actually referring to two different things within the same overall phenomena that there's somehow, when you get far, far away from the source, you end up getting the source again in some sort of weird way. Okay. Now, who has heard the phrase, um, either of these phrases before? Okay. And when you heard them, did they sound um, counterintuitive and weird and didn't make any sense? Yeah. Okay. I'm happy. Sometimes people say that they do make sense. Okay. Now. I feel like in a way, in a way, do, Explain. Of the second one, we're saying first thought is last action. Mm-hmm. Because you're doing, if you have a, somewhere in your head that you want to get to, mm-hmm. you do the actions, whatever, to get there. The last action is what you thought you wanted. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Right. So in, 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 in that way of explaining, which is often how it's explained, um, usually, don't be offended, it's often to beginners, and maybe we won't get past the stage, um, is, 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 is this simply describing something about the phenomenon of intent. That when you have an intent, right, your initial intent um, ends up in having that there's many other things that, you, that need to happen to get there. So you go from in, your initial intent to planning, then implementing the plan, then attaining your goal, right? So the goal that you attain reflects back on the initial intent, right? And then the other levels of thought were like the planning and then the other levels of doing were the implementation, yes? Okay. And that's not a wrong understanding. It it does remove some of the mysticism of the whole thing. Um, But that's not truly what the idea is about. So to understand this, um, we're going to use a, a physical, a, a physical uh, phenomenon. In the temple, which stood on the Temple Mount, the temple was actually 23 amos, 23 cubits, um, which is, let's say, roughly 50-ish feet, lower than the highest place on the Temple Mount. Okay, now, why was that? There are several reasons, but one of the reasons, there was a spring at the highest point. And that spring was used to feed a mikvah. Now, the rule with a mikvah is that if you um, use any human effort to actually transport the water to the mikvah, it is no longer valid water for a mikvah. The water has to naturally collect there. So, the ocean is a mikvah. A lake is a mikvah, okay? If you make a pit in the ground and wait for it to be filled with rainwater, it's a mikvah. If you dig a hole in the ground and, and the groundwater um, comes up to fill it, mikvah, right? See how this works? Yeah. Okay. There's an interesting thing. If you take ice and you stick it in the mikvah and it melts, that's also a mikvah. That's how do you think they get a mikvah in Arizona? <laughs> They're not waiting for it to rain. 
Um, it's complicated, but yes, that is a way to do it because you didn't actually bring the water. It was, it was ice. It just melted. I didn't do anything. Um, yes. It's complicated. It's, it, it's a big discussion, but yes, that is a way. So there was the Kohen Godel, the high priest in the temple, he had an apartment and that apartment had a mikveh in it. Now his apartment was on the top of the wall. It was uh, 20 amos high was the floor and the minimum height of a mikveh is three amos, which means the water had to be 23 amos above the base of the, of the temple. Now, how do you get the water up that high? See the problem? Like you can't exactly like, you know, carry the water up there and fill up the mikveh. Irrigation? Basically. So here's the rule with, with fluids is that if a fluid flows down, it will flow back up to the same height that it, okay? If you have like, for instance, if you were to have a water tower filled with water, yeah? And then you were to make a pipe that goes up the other side, right? And you just like let it there, the water pressure will push it back up to the height of the water tower. Back in the day, I used to remember what this was called. There's a special name for it in, in physics. Do you remember the name of it? There's a name for it. I don't remember what it's called. So what we find here is that it will go back to its initial height, right? It reclaims itself, in other words. Right? Um, if we're going to anthropomorphize the water for a second, the water, even if it's on the lower level, kind of remembers what its height is supposed to be and goes back to it, Okay? So this is the idea of The beginning is wedged in the end and the end is wedged in the beginning. Meaning what? That um, when something leaves the beginning, it kind of remembers what the beginning is and has to get back to that point. And that's a, that's a stopping point. But notice it gets back to there. It doesn't go higher. Make sense? Okay? And that works both ways. In other words, the water as it's going from the spring to the mikvah of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, it, even though it's moved away from the beginning, it knows that the, that, that the height of the beginning is the height of the end. And conversely, when I look at that water and I see what height it reaches naturally, I now know where the, how high the spring was, even if I've never been to the spring. Right? So the height of the spring determines the end, the height of the end of the water, the height of the mikvah, and the height of the mikvah informs me of the height of the spring because they are in some sense equivalent. Even though in the middle, the water was not at that height at all. Okay? That makes sense? Okay. So, Hasidus explains that there are many different what are called powers of the soul. And they are arranged in a hierarchy. I will list them for the purposes of this class for now. I reserve the right to modify this list later. Okay. The highest power is called in Hebrew ratzon or will. Below that is called seichel or intellect, reason. Below that are midas or emotion. Below that is machshava or thought. Now, I, I want to just keep you guys to know that thought is a very versatile term in Hasidus. So not all the times we use the word thought, we really mean thought. But here we mean actual thinking. Um, below that is dibur, speech. And below that is mice, action. Okay? Now here's the rule. Two of these are really the same. 
I will let you guys try and figure out which two are really the same. Ratzon, will, and Maisa action are really the same. They are in fact the same thing. No, the other way around. They are the same thing, and by seeing how they're the same thing, you will then see the nature of this logic. Now, this, <laughs> I'm trying, right. I, at the end of the day, I hope you don't just rely on what Mary Kaufman said. That's what it says, so I accept it by virtue of rabbinic authority. I actually, right, the, the, kind of the reality of it to impress upon you that there is this counterintuitive thing. Okay, what is, so, 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 so what, is, what is action? Right? Action is a power of the soul. What is an action? What is an action? Something you do. Something you do. <laughs> okay. Okay. Do you mean the sense that it's a, that I mean that any, anything that is a verb counts as action? So thinking is an action. Understanding is an action. Yeah. Because in that sense, it's not going to be helpful because we're putting action as distinct from intellect and emotion and thought and speech, right? Yeah. So physical action? Yeah. Okay. So... Action is like this. There is reality that is outside of your soul. Okay? To make this simple, we're just going to say it's outside of you and ignore for the moment that it's a little bit more complicated. So let us take our favorite example. What's our favorite example? The picture. The picture is external to me. Okay? Now, if I am walking, okay? and I trip and I hit the pitcher and it falls over and breaks, did I engage in an action? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And the answer to that is it is debatable. I'm not going to say yes, I'm not going to say no. Do you know why it is, not, why it is debatable? Because what is, it, what, is, what, what is clearly action is that. Why is that clearly action? Because it was directed onto them. That's right, it was directed. I, right? I made, I'm going to actually use a better word, I forced, I compelled the pitcher to conform to, to my desires. But if, you trip but if I trip and fall, right, that's not so obvious that that's what happened, right? Okay. Now, we could make arguments that that is in some way what that happens because my tripping and falling reflects a certain ambivalence to my surroundings, Right, and that indifference and ambivalence is a kind of you know. Okay, you you could, right? This is why we get all sorts of questions of culpability when you didn't intend directly for a particular result, right? Okay, I'm not going to see all the whole lot, but so the idea is that in order for an action to be an action, there has to be some element of will. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's not an action. In other words, a, an inanimate object does not have actions. Plants do not have actions. Animals have actions in as much as we understand them as having a kind of will, right? When you compel reality to be as you will it, you, that's what an action is. And again, because human beings are relative, very complicated, it's not a simple black and white, the tripping and falling, those are things are discussed in the Talmud, okay? Make sense? Okay, so here's an interesting question, and if I do a mitzvah, and I am completely oblivious to the fact that this is, in fact, the commandment of God. Has a mitzvah been done? Now, I previously said no, because I said that's like the practical thing. But I did say it's, a, it's somewhat complicated. There is a view in the Talmud that it's still a mitzvah. Now, how could it be a mitzvah? Like, if I just, like, um, you know, it's sukkahs, and I randomly just pick up a palm branch with the, the, the myrtles and the, and, and the, um, 
and the willows and, uh, and the citron. And I just kind of hold it like that just because for whatever reason, someone asked me to hold it for them. And I don't even know it's sukkahs. I don't know it's a mitzvah. What's the argument to say I've done a mitzvah? I haven't done anything. Because you've still engaged in the direct, you've still compelled, like you still engaged with the outside reality. Like, yeah, but I've compelled like, the actual reality not to, there's nothing, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, but, but there's no, right. My will was to hold these things so that guy doesn't, you know, can go to the bathroom yeah, or something. Wasn't, there was nothing, there's nothing divine about it. But thinking is a different element. No, no, but this is... The other guy had a will that you should hold. Oh, this is good. But it's not the other guy. Who does have a will? God. The other view would say the fact that God has a will and God, through whatever manner he got you to do the thing that he wanted, does in fact make it a kind of action, right? By the way, based on this view, some mystics argue your intent actually just makes things worse. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're going to set that aside. But I, I'm bringing this up because the idea is that an action is only an action, not because a physical change is being brought about, but that physical change is, ha- derives its meaning from the will of the doer. Right? What makes an action an action is that it carries meaning. Right? Why? Right? The, there's something that I want to achieve, in this case, just illustrating the idea, by moving this picture back and forth, right? And that's what makes that an action. Every action carries with it a meaning. But that, then, don't you also have to say that um, God only has the will for us to do mitzvahs? Because he doesn't have a will for us to like trip and fall in at the picture. Maybe he does. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, okay, fine. Different discussion. I hear where that's going, but I want to stay focused. Maybe he does. Different discussion. Different discussion. We have questions and answers. That's not the discussion for today. Okay. Now, so and here what I mean is here what I mean is on the on the on the very basic level, and you see this by the little kids. Little kids have a very hard time with this because little kids feel like everything was being done to them. And like, no, no, it wasn't being done to you. It, it, some things just happen, right? And, and it's a way that maybe the kids are right because all God doing stuff to you, right? Right? It's like, you know, if, 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 if um, you know, if the kid can't find something, someone stole it. In other words, it has to be someone willed reality to take it away from me. It can't just be that I don't have it anymore, right? So you see how, how action is not really action unless there is will there? Yeah. Okay, now, let's go the other way. What does it mean that you have a will for something? This might be my favorite thing. Sometimes the, the, the Bachram, they tell me in the men's program that they, they really wanted to come to class. <laughs> I'm like, I, no, you didn't. <laughs> hey, did someone stop you? Were you, were, you, were, you, were, you, were you chained to the bed? Like, was the door locked and you couldn't get out and the windows were barred? Like, 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 if you, if like, like, if you really wanted to go, like, why didn't you go? Like, if something is truly your will, how do we know that something is your will? You do it. Barring where there is literally a force stronger than yourself, right? Now, many people have a desire for a will. Like, I wish it was my will. That's a different thing altogether. Like, it would be nice if my will was to, like, get out of bed in the morning. But it wasn't, so I didn't. That's a different thing, right? Okay? So, is there such a thing as a will without action unless... And here's the thing, assuming that we're not going to introduce a power greater than yourself. If you have a will for something, what does that mean? What does that actually mean? You are going to, you are going to do it. That's what it means. In other words, they work both, they entail each other. 
An action is not an action because something happened. An action is an action because it's the acting out of your will. Will is will, not just because you would like something, because you, it actually is the driving force that drives you to make, to do stuff. And so one necessarily entails the other. You can mess things up. For instance, someone could have a will, but they're chained to the table and they can't get off the table. And so like, fine, that's, you know, then their will to like do something results in them going, or something like that. They just struggle against the chains. Okay, just one second. And there are certain things that you might physically happen, which, which are not necessarily the result of your will. Like, I mean, someone takes and throws you. I don't know if the, how much that reflects your will. I don't know how much, therefore, we consider that your action. Does that make sense? So in theory, and I'll let you ask a question, in theory, what should happen is you will and then you do, right? And this is the most profound thing about a person seemingly because in as much as your will is your own, okay, which is a discussion for another time, that means that you actually have some kind of ownership over the way you interact with reality, right? Will means I do. Doing is, is, is my will being actualized and my will is my own, that as opposed to an animal's will, which is just a drive or an instinct. That sounds like, this sounds like animals. No, because the, the difference is animals, I don't want to dwell on this, animals don't own their own will, which, is, which basically means that they have no ability to will other than what they do which I'm not going to go further into that. That's another discussion for another time. But in as much you decide your own will, that means you decide everything within. But no, like. You do. It's just, it's just there are things that are more powerful than you. Yeah. Okay. In other words, now, not everything, not everything is subject to your will and your action, right? But those things which are, you decide everything unless something is more powerful that stops you. Yeah. Okay. So really, it's just like one thing. Make sense? Okay, now, you wanted to ask a question. Um, yeah, but I think I want to like it. Okay. So now, here's the thing. What you will notice is that our will and our action are very much removed from each other. Our will is usually directed at things which are very um, ethereal. Okay. So I'm going to give an example. This example is going to become more later. I have a will to help somebody. Right? There's somebody and they need help and I have a will to help them. But that's like very vague. What does that mean to help them? So what does that will necessitate? It requires some specificity. I must engage the reality of that person, the situation, my capacities, right? And so I move away from my will and I enter the realm of reason, right? Right? So it starts out, I have this drive, which is my own, which is my own, right? It's not like an animal's, to help somebody. But I have to move away from my will to help somebody because I can't just help somebody. That's too ethereal. So I have to figure out what, what kind of help they need, right? And, and, and that is actually a more complex picture, right? And now I'm going to need all sorts of emotions that are going to keep me um, connected to reality in the right way. For instance, there are certain things now I realize, now I realize there are certain things I need to be cautious about. Like for instance, let's say you're helping somebody, um, they need help eating, right? But they, they've been deprived of food for a long time and so God forbid they could eat too quickly and they could die, right? 
So, you, so that awareness of that in your intellect creates a certain kind of caution. And that feeling of caution is necessary for you to actually proceed forward, right? That makes sense? Okay, you may need, right, there may need to be a certain, you may need to realize that they, they um, feelings of specific, you know, compassion, um, there may need to be, there are obstacles in the way that you may need to have kind of a sense of determination. There are all sorts of actual emotions that are going to be necessary for you to navigate reality to bring about what your intellect decided is appropriate, right? Okay, and then there's the actual like, concrete thinking through. Um, where you actually like, like, what am I going to do first, second, third, fourth, right? Like to actually break that down very, very practically. Whereas the initial intellect is just kind of a sense of what really needs to be done. Then there's the actual like, if anyone engaged in a complicated um, task see, that you're not, you're not habituated to, right? You have to dialogue with yourself. Okay, now I'm at this stage, I'm going to do this, right? So you have to think through as you're going to make sure you stay on task and doing the right things. And very often you can't do it alone, so you need to engage with others, right? So there may even be an element that that goes externalized through speech, right? Okay. Notice at this point, we've moved far away from the fact that I have a will to help you. Like that's where like not, you're not living in that space anymore, right? But then after all of that, right? You actually give the person, you know, the poor person, the bread that they need, right? When you are doing that, when you're actually taking that thing and, and actually physically doing the thing that helps that person, where, where are you back to? The will. I'm going to help the person, right? That's all it is, right? So you start off with, I'm, I, I have a will to help. You end with, I have a will to help. And you have to move away from that in the middle because when you first, on the first level, my will to help is so much about my will, how that actually actualized is, is not available yet. But when you come back to actually act on it, all you're doing is carrying out your will. Okay, so it's like it's it's like it's like the mikvah by the by the high priest, right? It starts here. You move down and move away from this sense that this is the thing that I'm doing, that thing that I care about, and you engage the reality that needs to be done and the different kinds of emotions that that would have to entail and how to you know talk to yourself, which is what thought is, to keep yourself on track, right? Maybe engage other people if you need their help, but that all comes back down to actually your will. That you're now acting out your, right? And so that's the idea that the beginning is wedged in the end. And then the end we see is really what makes that act of handing that bread to that person an act is because I am helping the person, which was what my will was. But all those steps that I experienced in the middle weren't about my will. They weren't about, they weren't about doing. They were other kinds of processes that get me from the beginning to the end, but they're neither the beginning nor the end. They kind of involve a way of stepping away from myself. Yeah. Um, okay, like breaking this down kind of in like the more granular, granular level, like you start off with, I have a will to help somebody, and then as you break down the steps that you need to like kind of get back to there, wouldn't each individual step have its own kind of like beginning and end that? That and is like correct. Each individual step would... Like, would that still be part of, like, that whole process to, like, get you back to... Yes, yeah, so, so we can overly complicate this, and what we say is like <laughs> this, is that, that everything actually has a kind of... Every stage has a kind of a beginning and end, because you have to... At what point do you stop 
stop reflecting and pondering it and actually move into the realm of having the emotions that motivate you to move forward and, and right and, and you know the thinking to so so there is this idea that will actually mildly has to reassert itself at every transition point mm-hmm. and so there is a kind of miniature version of the end of beginning wedged in each transition point mm-hmm. but the true notion of the end and the beginning is really the initial will for whatever, in this case, the will to help somebody, and the actual handing them the bread in the case of a poor person that needs to eat. Okay? But you are right. Um, there's a concept in, in Kabbalah, which the Hebrew is that all of the crowns descend from each other, which is basically every transition point requires some element of the reemergence of will, um, which is what you're touching on. But I, w- I don't want to go further into that because that's not the main point of the lesson. But that is a very important insight. Good? Okay. Now, how do you feel when you're helping the person? Again, it's assuming this is your will, right? You're not doing it because of somebody else's will right now. It's really your will that helps you. How do you feel when you're helping them? Good. Good. Why do you feel good? Why do you feel good? What? Why does that feel good? No. That's, that's, that's superficial. I mean, it's true for many people, but that, that, that's... You help someone else? No. 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 It's like the culmination of all this work you've been no. doing. Because you're in alignment with... Let me ask you, what? Complete desire. We have, to go, we have to go back to what will is. What is will? Will does drive you to do, right? Will does drive you to do things, right? Will, will is an expression of you. Let's think about the difference between will and reason for a moment. If I have a will to help somebody, what does that mean? That helping somebody is important to? To me. If I say it is reasonable to help somebody, that means its importance doesn't stem from me. It stems from from something outside of me. Do you see how that's a huge shift? Yeah. Okay. Will is... Will is is, let's put this on slightly differently. Let's take the opposite extreme for a moment. Let's take a person who's dead. I don't mean they're physically like dead. I mean that they're psychologically dead. They don't, they don't in touch with any notion of themselves as a living person at all. What are they missing? A will, they don't have a will for anything, right? right? Having a will means I have a sense of me being a living being, right? Someone who makes decisions and cares, that is experienced through the will. In fact, what the will is directed at in a certain sense isn't really the main point, right? If I care about helping the poor person or I care about understanding a piece of Talmud, on the level of the will, what matters is that this is me experiencing myself as a self, as someone who cares about something. It happens to be, this is the thing I care about, but it could have been whatever I care about, but that's the thing that I care about. Once you move into the realm of reason, what you care about is much more important than that you care. Like, what does this entail? What does it not entail? What works with it? What doesn't work with it? Okay. You see this very simple. If a person really wants to understand something that's complicated, to the reason through complicated things requires a kind of calmness of mind, and we feel our will. Is our mind very calm? No. So we often have to move away from, I really want to understand, in order to actually begin to understand. To understand okay? So the will... It's an expression of the self. In other words, the will is to the self like light is to the sun, like heat is to fire. 
It is the outpouring of being someone. And, it's, and it always has directed towards something. And, and the analogy I used, it's, I'm going to help this person. But then my intellect is like, well, what kind of help do they need? How would I even go about helping? What does that entail, right? Now I'm moving away from my will. So remember what I said now about how will and action are really in some sense the same thing? So when you are helping them, guess what? You are being in a way that you never are when you're trying to understand what to do, when you're feeling the emotions that keep you, right? Those are all things that have to do with reality outside of yourself. Strangely, when you are acting, right? When you're doing, you are being yourself in a way that you're not really yourself when you are trying to make sense of things, when you're talking to people, when you're thinking things through. You're just being yourself, but you're being yourself in a way that yourself is out there and having an effect as opposed to initially was just you're being yourself that's driving you to have that effect. The, the will before the process, where the will is lacking in the act, the instantiation, the action, and as opposed to the will reemerging in the action. So based on this, when are you your truest self? When you are acting. As long, right, when you're acting, because in your actions, you are living your will. When you are understanding, when you are feeling emotions, fear, love, trepidation, hope, right? Thinking, speaking, you're engaging other stuff and you've moved away from your will. Your will might be justifying all those things, but, you're, but these aren't instantiations. These aren't embodiments of the will in the way that action is. So when are we our truest selves? When we live, when we act as ourselves. That's what will it. That's the, that's, that's the idea of in the beginning is wedged in the end and the edge is wedged in the beginning. Okay, does that make, is that starting to make some more sense? Or no? Some people are saying yes, some people are saying no, which means that we're making progress. <laughs> If I am trying to understand what is the best way to rebuild a motor, my, my psyche is engaged with the reality of the motor. If I am afraid that I will damage the motor if I, if I twist the screw too, screwdriver too hard, I, my psyche is engaged with the reality of the motor. If I'm telling myself, now I need to stop doing this, now start doing that thing to fix the motor, my, my, my psyche is also engaged with the motor. If I ask someone for help, I'm now engaging the reality of the motor and other people. If it's important to me to fix the motor, then what is my psyche engaged with? Will. Myself. That's will. When I'm actually doing something with the motor, my hands are doing something with the motor, what is, what is being embodied in my hands? That very same thing which is why people feel, them, feel like they are themselves when they, when they act in accordance with their will. Now, it's a separate discussion whether we ever even in touch with our will or aware of our will. That's like a whole more complicated thing. In fact, one of the things that we do when we educate children is that we tell them to behave in certain ways knowing that deep down that's their will even though they're not aware of it. For instance, for instance, I'll give you a non-religious example. Um, most people, um, I would actually say all people, um, have a have a a a, a sense. 
they have a will towards productivity. To leave reality better, in some sense, than, than, than before they got there, right? Now, children and other immature beings often spend their time not being productive, right? Why is that? Do they sense that will within themselves? Okay, now what happens if you can get a person to do productive things? How do they feel? Because they are actually living that will in action. And just like if you go to the, the Kohen Gadol's um, mikvah, you see the mikvah. From there, you can see where, how high the spring was. You can, in other words, you can discover your will by acting it out first. <laughs> now, you would need something to prompt you to do it, right? That's where educators and parents and societal pressure may come in, right? Okay. Or it could work the other way, right? You could have a very strong sense of your will that then leads you to act, which is the first way I described it, okay? But you see like all the other stuff in the middle, you're not really engaging with yourself in that sense. You're engaging with other stuff, okay? A one tiny little note then, because I want to move on to the other point. When we engage in stuff, sometimes it's pleasurable and sometimes it's painful. What if you shift your engagement of those stuff to be focused on whether it's pleasurable or painful as your sole criteria? then you end up into a very dangerous place because now it's not about is, this, is my intellect helping me understand how, what, what, what my real will really necessitates. It's not are my feelings really keeping me in alignment with what reality demands of me to accomplish what my will is. Um, it's am I enjoying that particular experience in the moment? And when that becomes the mode in which we live, we're not really living ourselves anymore at all. Um, and that's where you get things like you know mind-numbing behavior, um, entertainment and things like that, where it's just about that your psyche is engaged in something that is not unpleasant to experience at the moment. Right? Whereas when we're talking about these things, these are all important things because eventually they lead you, in as much as you're, as you're a mature person, lead you to act in accordance with your will. Right? The immature person, someone else guides them to act in accordance with their will. The mature person has to first sense their will and then bring themselves to act in accordance with it. But Everything in between is a step away from your own will. And so you're not really living yourself at those places. And you become vulnerable at that stage to how it feels in the moment rather than is this, you know, leading me back to acting in accordance with my will because my will needs to be instantiated in action and my actions are, are mine because they, they embody my will. Okay, what's this other phrase? So let's go back to helping the poor person, yeah? Let us imagine that you help the poor person and you gave them some bread, you feel really good. Why do you feel really good? Because you are, you are, you are, you are, you, you are really being yourself. Now, if you are not sensitive enough to really appreciate that, you can warp that with all sorts of things like ego things and feeling accomplished, but those are like how the ego kind of builds stuff around that idea, which may or may not be a good thing. How do you feel after you give the food, after you give the bread to the poor person? Better or worse? Better. Why do you feel better? You gave, there's giving the bread to the poor person, you're giving the bread, you are helping them. Right now you're helping them. And then you you're stop, no you're longer, done. You're no longer, you're no longer helping them. How, how do you feel? I said the accomplished thing is a, is, a, is a corruption that the ego places on this whole thing. So no, I'm, set, I'm taking out ego for a moment. So without ego, you should feel worse because you're not acting in your true self. You'll feel better. What happens after you give the poor person the bread? He's happy. He eats. He eats. 
And you're still helping you. No, no, no. <laughs> this is the other idea. So it's a totally different idea. If you have a will to help somebody, what is deeper than your will? Their well. Their well-being. Right? Yeah. Right? What does it mean you have a will to help somebody? It means that your will to help someone is motivated because something at the core of your being is bound up with their well-being. That's why you have a will to help them. So if they, if they are being nourished by the food, that brings you in touch with something deeper than your will. Okay. In other words, the idea, the, the idea is that after, this is how it's understood in Chassidus, soif maisa doesn't mean the last thing you do. It means what happens after you finish doing. So it's like you can have one person that's giving charity and like, let's say they give it to the same person every week and then one week the person disappears and they're upset that they can't give the charity anymore. And then maybe another person, they give them charity and then find out that they like have a job. Now they're successful and they're like so happy. That does more for them than all the giving them charity because the charity was motivated. They had a will to help this person because that person's well-being t- touches them to their core. Now that's not something they experience directly. They exp- that, that was... That was something that they don't experience. They experience the will that derives from it. It's like the fire, right? You feel the heat that radiates from the fire. You don't actually stick your finger in the flame. You don't, the level of yourself that really, what, how that other, person's well, that other person's well-being, you don't feel the other person's well-being. You feel the urge to help them, to provide for them, to care for them, to do something. But once you've done that, and now their situation is that they have the food to eat, in this case, right? This is a simple analogy. Now what happens? That person is reflecting back to you something deeper. It's like that person becomes a mirror. And they're reflecting back the thing that undergirds your will. The thing that the will is based on. Remember, if the will is like the light, the light radiates from? Right? So now what happens when that person is eating and you see them being nourished, you see them being well-fed, you, the, the inner core of your being from which your will sprang forth is being reflected back at you in the other person. And in that sense, you're actually more in touch with yourself than even in your will. Okay? And this notion of self is, 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 is a much more profound notion of self because it's not a self that you can access you can feel, you know, you can, you can kind of feel your own will. You can feel like a person, like if they do deep, 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 deep reflecting and they're very mature, they can get to a point like, what do I really care about? What am I really driven towards? What is really important to me, right? And once you get to that place, can you go one step further? Like why? Why is that the thing that matters to me? You can, like, there is always a point where you get to that place where you can't answer that question. But there is thing, when you act on that will and that will brings to whatever it's meant to bring to, then in the result of that will reflects back on the thing that motivate, that, that underlies that will to begin with. And this is what it means, Saif Maisa Al Machshav the The thing that occurs after you've acted reflects back on the thing that, that is, arises first before all thoughts, even before 
Now here I don't mean think like thinking, I mean even before will. Okay? And what this means is that while it is true that you are really in touch with yourself when you are acting in accordance with your will, you are more in touch with yourself when the impact your will has is something that you see. Because the impact that your will has reflects back the thing that, under, that, that, that drove you, that motivated you to the will to begin with. And that's something you have no direct access to. Okay? Um, so, this is why, okay, what is the best feeling you can have as a teacher? When your students understand, not when you're teaching. Not when you're teaching. When you're done teaching and your students understand. And they understand so well that they don't actually need you to to teach them anymore at all. Because why were you teaching them? Something deep inside you drives you, motivates you to confer your knowledge onto these people, right? And so when they actually have that knowledge, that's a deeper, that reflects a deeper part of you than your will to make it happen. So the first phrase, the first phrase, the beginning is wedged, the end and the end is the beginning, is the notion of ourselves as doers, ourselves as willers, ourselves as engaging reality. But the second phrase is something more profound. It's that there's, a core to who we are that we can never actually discover in ourselves and can only be reflected back to us once we've lived in accordance with what our true will is. So now let's put this with God. Where is there more God to be found? When God's will is, when God's will is done? Yeah. No, or after God's will is done. After. Which means when, when... Is there more when... Is when it when God does was there more God found when God does things for us or when we when we take what God has given us and we live in the way God wanted us to live all along. So in other words, the most powerful thing is when we are doing mitzvahs in a way that we are the ones doing them because now it's it's, it's God's, God, God commanded us to do it. And now in us obeying the command, we're reflecting back to God the thing that underlied the command to begin with. Okay. okay. So you see how these are not the same idea, but they're interrelated ideas? Okay. And the thing is now, here's the thing. Do, do we feel that the most godly thing is us choosing to obey God's commands? That's the difference between now and the Messianic era. Right now, we don't see it, right? If you're, looking, if you're looking at the side and you just see some, some vagabond on the street chumping on a loaf of bread, you're like, you don't feel like there's anything profound there, right? But if you're the person who had that deep will to help them and you look at that person eating, right? That, that, that's, that you see in that person's being nourished a reflection of the core of your being that underlies your, 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 this, this fundamental will that you have. So it's just a matter of what you see there, right? Well, now we see observing mitzvahs just, you know, as a human being. And after the Messianic Canada comes, we'll be able to see what God sees in our doing of mitzvahs. 
That's the difference. So why would we, one of the many reasons we want Mashiach to come is that we can see the God in the mitzvahs that we're already doing. That makes sense? A little bit? Okay. So there you go. A Hasidic idea. Like, All right. Would you call this pleasure? Like time, kind of? I, I'm specifically not giving it a name. Um, because I want to just to phrase it in terms of will and that which is prior to will and leave it at that. Um, I could stick in the notion of pleasure, but that just overly complicates it for reasons I don't want to go into right now. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, there's one. Oh, this? We talked about like this one direction from will down to action and how from the action you can see the will. Mm-hmm. Based on the logic, could you see it the other way around too? Like from the will, you can see the action? Yeah, but the way I put it is like this, is that the will necessitates the action the will, the, 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 from the will, you don't really see the specifics of the actions when you move into it because the action has to take place in reality. Right. And will is just about how it's important to you. I was trying to connect it to the first statement. Right. So the will necessitates the action, and the action shows the it shows the will. But, but in reality, because will is so much you, and action has to happen in reality, there's all these intermediate steps to bring those two halves into a whole. And during those intermediate steps, you've gone away from the self. That's the intellect and the emotion and the thought and the speech. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. What about where your like action is like deviates completely from your will? Like, how does that connect back to the like beginning? So that would be that 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 would have to do with 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 in religious terminology, this would do with the idea of sin um, and tshuva, which are topics I, I are like require too much to explain right now. Okay. What about like a different? I I just want to give you other terminology, which okay. are, there's a notion of self alienation where you are living in a way that you're alienated from yourself. Um, um, and, and that would be a, a similar idea. Um, and and I just, I'm using it to another because you immediately can see like that creates a whole other way of complication. There's other thing people brought up, this notion of, of feeling accomplished. There's no notion of ego, which I didn't discuss, which is the notion that we, we form, and I, I know previously I said I don't like the word ego, and here I'm using it in a very specific term, the notion of an ego as a forming of a identity of who I am that I try to protect and live in accordance with, which is not the same thing as the self. And once that gets in the mix, you create another, right? And that's actually what creates the possibility of self-alienation. So like you have a bunch of other factors that end up, you know, in real life, overly complicating um, this idea. You know, that if a person just had what I described in, in this class, then, then they would be like, you know, a complete sadic and like they would just like live their true self and, and you know, they would be in a state of redemption in some way and like that'd be great. But <laughs> our lives are much more complicated. So there's other factors involved. Um, in other words, not every time you have a desire for something and then you act on it, would everything I say really apply here? Yeah. Right? If the, if, the, you know, if the desire is a corruption of the spirit that comes from the indulgence of pleasure of an experience that warps the will, you know, and then you develop some sort of ego sense that then gets wrapped up in that, then like, you know, that whole mess to clean up, which mm-hmm. describes most of us. <laughs> which is why we need like a code of Jewish law to tell us what we should really do. <laughs> Coming back to square one. Yeah.